0: From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzis, and this is City Lights. When is something ghastly a good thing? The answer to that question is the ghastly dreadfuls, an adult puppet show for Halloween that has been an Atlanta tradition for 15 years. The show was created by John Ludwig and Jason Hines for the Center for Puppetry Arts. This year's Ghastlies will gather on Halloween night for Live from the Grave virtually. During the daytime, much less scary, but lots of fun is promised for families in person at the Center for Puppetry Arts. Executive Director Beth Chavo and Museum Director Jill Malool will tell us about the Monster Mash celebration with safety protocols observed. We begin with a serious subject today, an author who will speak in a virtual book conversation from the Atlanta History Center, a free virtual event tonight at seven. It seems incredible that in the state of Tennessee, there are more monuments to a man who was a slave trader and grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan than to all three of the state's presidents combined. Yet, such is the impassioned devotion to the memory of Confederate General Nathan B. Forrest. The subject inspired Connor Town O'Neill to write Down Along With That Devil's Bones. The author joins us now via Zoom. Connor, welcome to City Lights.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you.
0: The book's subtitle is a reckoning with monuments memory and the legacy of white supremacy and it's been described as essential anti-racist reading please tell us please tell us what led you in 2015 to immerse yourself in this topic
1: yeah uh, of all things it was a search for free parking that sent me down this rabbit hole about Nathan Bedford Forrest and and his monuments. Uh, So in March of 2015, I was in Selma, Alabama, covering the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, which was the uh, attack in 1965 uh, by Alabama law enforcement on nonviolent demonstrators at the foot of uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge there in Selma. The late John Lewis among them. And 50 years later, President Obama was in town to give a speech and to cross over the bridge in remembrance. And s- along with him, some 40,000 other people showed up. So by the time I got to town, uh, and, and some was a pretty small city. So by the time I got there, you know, the downtown streets were packed, people were, you know, flooding over the sidewalks. Uh, and so I th- figured, oh, maybe I can find a- an out of the way place to leave my car in the cemetery that's just a couple of blocks from downtown. And and Selma, like a lot of Southern towns has this, you know, really old South feeling cemetery, mausoleums, Spanish moss, the whole deal. So I pull in and it has its own system of roads there. And, And as I'm driving through, I see these signs that say Confederate Memorial Circle closed, no trespassing. And that really piqued my interest. That's sort of catnip for a reporter. So I just kind of wander over and, and, and start talking to the people who were there and come to realize that this group that owns this plot in the, in the cemetery, the, the Friends of Forest, they call themselves, uh, had spent really the better part of the last two decades fighting uh, about this statue of Nathan Bedford Forest that they had put up the juxtaposition, the dissonance of this encounter with the neo-Confederate group on a day of you know, a major civil rights anniversary, it almost gave me whiplash and raised a bunch of questions about who Forrest was, what it meant to put up a statue of him in 2015, and you know what the persistent legacy of, of the Civil War was some 150 years later. And so I... Went down this rabbit hole about Forrest and, and his monuments. And just a couple months later, Dylan Roof murders nine parishioners of Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. And soon after he's apprehended, uh, photos from his blog circulate online. And it became clear that almost as a way to sort of steal himself. Uh, for this act of terrorism that he would commit, he took a sightseeing tour around South Carolina, visiting slave memorials, plantations, Civil War sites. Uh, and so in the aftermath of, of the Charleston Nine murders, this real referendum on Confederate symbols breaks out. Bree Newsom scales the flagpole of the South Carolina capital to remove the Confederate flag there. And, you know, all across the South, campaigns break out to protest names of schools, the use of the Confederate flag, and of course, uh, Confederate monuments. And so as those campaigns started up, because of this encounter that I had had with the Friends of Forest just a few months earlier, I decided that I was going to follow some of these stories and follow the ones aimed at monuments of Forest in particular. So that's been, you know, (laughs) Every working day for the last five years i have been you know running down leads and following stories that I found from this you know chance encounter in a in a cemetery while I, I was looking for free parking
0: I like how you describe that as catnip for a reporter last year, you were one of the producers for the nPR podcast white lies and The podcast examined the murder of Reverend James Reeb in Selma, Alabama, and uncovered the truth behind the acquittal of the three men who murdered him. How did your work on the podcast inform your approach to writing the book?
1: Well, uh, y- you know, in the most basic way, it was what was bringing me to Selma a lot, and 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 how I stumbled upon this story. When I met this neo Confederate group in the in the cemetery, they handed me a, a stack of Confederate propaganda that included a letter outlining the conspiracy theory about how essentially the move the civil rights movement had killed uh, James Reeb, and we spent a lot of time in the podcast. Um, you know, really deconstructing and, and decimating that that conspiracy theory. But it was, of course, the, the theory that the um, defense attorney used to uh, uh, lead to the acquittal of the men accused of killing Reeb. So really, it's, it's been that the book is kind of a, a, a spinoff from some of the reporting that that we were doing on on white lies. But I think a lot of the questions raised about how we face our history and the, the, the ways that our Unwillingness to tell the truth about the past and the really sort of terrifying nature of American history, our refusal to do that continues to have consequences for us in the in the present. And so, you know, the uh, the podcast took you know this moment from the the civil rights movement and looked at the the lies that people were telling themselves, the conspiracies that had um, that had come up as almost a sort of coping mechanism to let people off the hook, a community off the hook even, uh, from having to face and be accountable to the, the violence in its past, and the violence committed in order to try and maintain a society based on this racial hierarchy. In a lot of ways, the book looks at a lot of the same questions. It just sort of moves them back 100 years. So instead of looking at a moment or a figure from the Civil Rights Movement, this is looking at a a figure from, from the Civil War. But it's asking a lot of those same questions. Why we aren't telling the truth about who Forrest was and what his legacy represents. This is a man who, like you say, was a slave trader an accused war criminal during the war, the first Grand Wizard of the Klan after the war, operated a a convict leasing plantation, uh, a system that's known as slavery by another name. So in in, in sort of every phase of his life, he was committed to upholding this racial hierarchy um, and, and to benefit from that materially. And yet, like you say, the landscape of the South is flooded with monuments of him trying to honor him. Um, and to sidestep the, the thornier questions about w- what it means to remember him and to not just remember him, but to honor him in the present. And, you know, as you can hear, <laughs> that's my, my daughter in the background, Olive, who was just born
0: oh, uh, a couple how, of
1: weeks ago. Um,
0: how old is she?
1: She will be six weeks old tomorrow.
0: Oh, um, boy.
1: Yeah, it's funny, actually, uh, she came a few days early, but her due date was the the same day as the book's publication. (laughs) So it's been a real whirlwind of a month here.
0: Well, all good things. Definitely. Congratulations. Thank you. You mentioned the word deconstruct, and I'm not trying to get into any literary theory here, but that came to my mind, in the portion of the book where you cite Derek Alderman, a professor of cultural geography at the University of Tennessee, saying that the monuments were built for the purposes of communicating who mattered in Southern society and who mattered within American society you can think of them as monuments to the power of the people who erect them rather than as solely of the person depicted this is striking connor would you elaborate on how monuments are as much if not more for the living than the dead
1: yeah absolutely yeah i think it's important there we can sometimes get so habituated to them the, the monuments of the places that we live can sort of fade into the background of the skyline almost. And, and it's easy to think of them as always having been there and it, that it's just inevitable that they are there. But of course, they're not, you know, they, they were put up at a particular moment. And especially if they're on public property, putting them up would require a certain amount of economic power and certainly political power as well. I mean, obviously they seek to uh, remember someone from the past, but you can't just put up a monument, right? It, it, it does require some exertion of power. And in exerting that power, you're deciding for a town, a city, a state, uh, a university, who's worthy of being remembered in the moment that you're remembering them. Um, not everyone gets a monument. And so you can look at the landscape and think, okay, who gets remembered and when are they being remembered as a reflection of the values of the society in those moments in the present. So, uh, for example, uh, the, the big 30-foot bronze equestrian statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that was in Memphis uh, doesn't go up in 1877 when he died in that city, but rather goes up in 1905, you know, decades later. Uh, and by that point, you know, 50 years after, almost 50 years after the, the war had ended, and that moment matters. And it's not a coincidence that it goes up in that moment. That's a moment, uh, you know, that same year, Memphis uh, segregates its streetcars. And it's in the aftermath of Ida B. Wells's uh, groundbreaking reporting on uh, racial terror lynchings that, that were taking place in Memphis the previous decade. So they're about the Civil War and they seek to honor this general from the Civil War, but they're also responding to the particular moment that they're going up just as much. And they're a reflection of the, the powerful men, the powerful white men in Memphis in 1905 who wanted that statue to go up, and of course made no secret about it when they dedicated the statue. One of the state senators who spoke at that statue's dedication said that, you know, Forrest will fight for us and as long as there's a drop of Anglo-Saxon blood so they were really making it clear the sort of racial uh, overtones of this statue it wasn't just about you know remembering the civil war
0: no um, and and indeed you make the point clearly that the majority of confederate statues were built in the jim crow era between the 1890s and the 1950s <laughs> something that occurred to me while reading that, was the fact that there is no counterpart for these Confederate monuments in Germany or in South Africa. I mean, it is, it, there certainly has been a rise of populism throughout Europe, there has been a far right that's taken hold in Germany, and other Western European countries. There are no monuments to Eichmann or any of the SS, the Nazi commanders. There aren't even, to my knowledge, World War II generals who have statues in Germany. Why does our country allow this?
1: I think because the unwillingness to see Reconstruction through. So of course, you know, the these Confederate monuments are, are monuments to the losers of the war but in a in an ideal in an ideological sense the south didn't really lose the civil war they lost the military conflict but ideologically it's harder to argue that the south really lost so you're right if if you look at losers don't get to put up statues but in this case they did and i think that's because in the aftermath of the of the civil war during reconstruction there was this this fleeting you know about a decade of time in which the country was really grappling with the consequences of the war um, and asking the question that that had made the war, you know come, which was you know, if a, a, a settler and slave society could transform itself into a multiracial democracy. And so you see in Reconstruction's effort towards efforts toward really making that happen, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, vesting the formerly enslaved with uh, equal protection under the law, political rights, voting rights. And yet- that's short-lived and is short-lived in large part because of forces like the Ku Klux Klan, which Forrest was the the Grand Wizard of, the first Grand Wizard of, really undermining those efforts. And by 1877, with the brokered election, the North and the South are really ready to sort of pack up shop on this effort to really transform the country into that multiracial democracy and instead allow the former Confederates to return to power and to re-implement policies that protect the racial hierarchy as it existed before the war. So you have things like convict leasing, sharecropping, poll taxes, other ways of voter disenfranchisement. And it's at that moment, once the former Confederates have returned to power, these statues start going up. Uh, to they start having the, the political capital to put up statues to their heroes. So, yeah, so the, the Confederates lost the, the military conflict. They surrender at Appomattox. But ideologically speaking, it's, the Confederacy has had a much longer tail. And, and the Confederate statues that we're still dealing with are a reflection of that, just as, you know, so many of the in- inequities that we have in this country are, are part of that long tail of the Confederacy
0: author Connor Town O'Neill, discussing his new book, Down Along With That Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments, memory, and the legacy of white supremacy. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta.
1: Have you heard an interview on City Lights that you would like to share with a friend or listen to again? wabe.org slash citylights is the place to find today's interview, as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at wabe.org slash citylights. And thanks for listening.
0: This is City Lights on WABE. I Lois writes this thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation with the author Connor Town O'Neill. His new book is down along with that Devil's Bones, a reckoning with monuments memory and the legacy of white supremacy. This past spring and summer with the reckoning with racism, the global reckoning. There were many protests around the removal of Confederate monuments. What did you learn in all of this research that doesn't surprise you about why there's this clinging to a memory of terror?
1: I think we cling to these monuments and the the attitudes reflected in them, because they don't want to hold us accountable. Confederate monuments, I think, in a way, reflect an attitude toward the past that we can only, uh, we only have to think about the past in ways that flatter us, or in ways that, you know, reflect positively on us. So, you know, if you ask people why they want a statue of Forrest to stay up, they say, well, because he was a great military commander, uh, or because he was a self-made man. And the the sort of magical thinking required to only think about Forrest in those terms, I think is really seductive. And I think is, in one way or another, seductive for, for lots of people, uh, regardless of their feelings about Forrest specifically. Because I think we've inherited a drastically unequal violent in a lot of ways sort of morally bankrupt society (laughs) and thinking about the past thinking about the you know the ways that the system of slavery was physical and and spiritual torture and essentially built the modern economy uh, enriched people in the north as well as the south how the lie that People in the North and the South were telling to justify that system, that in the in- enslaved people were inherently inferior. That lie, of course, is going to persist long after emancipation. Looking at all of the policies throughout the years that have continued that racial hierarchy and meant to protect the racial hierarchy from the Homestead Act to who's included or left out of the Social Security Act, who gets FHA loans, uh, who's eligible for the GI Bill, who is the target of predatory lending in the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis. There's a, a long lasting injury that is a result of this lie that we've told ourselves about white supremacy and black inferiority. And so if you look at the past and and see that we should be held accountable to that past, then we need to change. Confederate monuments tell us that we don't need to change, that when we look backwards, we should see things that flatter us and that don't hold us accountable or responsible, but instead say, you know, yes, our, our past flatters us. And, and this is American exceptionalism 101 in a lot of ways. You know, we're we're constantly making this union more perfect, where progress is inevitable, we're always getting better. But I think when there's a referendum on Confederate monuments, there's that suggests a deeper referendum on on how we look to the past and 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 what the past might lead us to do to confront the inequities that that persist to this day.
0: We've talked a great deal about the South, about the Confederate monuments in the South. You don't let Northerners off the hook, Connor. Equally dispiriting is what you bring to this story as a Northerner. Would you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And the, the southern end of that county is the, the Mason-Dixon line. And I think that that line we think about re- in a really convenient way in the north. The sort of received wisdom is that, you know, oh, we're, we're in the north and, and race insofar as it's still a problem in America is just, a, you know, a problem in people's hearts and mostly is just a problem down there. And the Civil War—that's you know—we're we're affiliated with the Union Army, the Great Emancipators. So by extension, then of course, racism and the Confederacy—all of that is tied together. And that's and that's that stuff for down there. The great writer Robert Penn Warren called it the uh, the treasury of virtue, you know, sort of disdainfully <laughs> describing the Northerners' attitude that they're sort of unimpeachable and that they don't have this this history of the war doesn't doesn't have anything to do with them and i certainly felt that that growing up that's again really convenient but it's just it's just not true you know if you look at the ways that that northerners were heavily and and and, and deeply invested in the slave system we we're, were making massive profits from it developing all of these sorts of financial instruments to make even more profit from it i mean the great historian Edward Baptist documents this in incredibly and in, in, in devastating detail and the half has never been told. I mean, reading that book, I think really opened up my eyes to see that, that, that the deep financial stake that that the North had in this slave system. We really flatter ourselves by, by thinking that, you know, just because we can claim the Union army, that we can somehow be exempt from, uh, from the legacy of slavery. Uh, we really can't. And of course, you know, looking at an even deeper history that my family likes to think about it in, in really positive terms. Um, we're, you know, we have descendants on the Mayflower family history that touches the Salem witch trials, this long, you know, sort of the, the Puritan origins of new England and that we, you know, we like to think of that in terms of the enlightenment, this new birth of freedom that, that we helped create in this, in, in the new world being devout Christians and, and, you know, helping to establish these ideas of Liberty and freedom that the country would Built on, but this working on this project really prompted me to to reevaluate those stories that we were telling ourselves, and and to look in a in a, a more honest way, in a more sobering way, of course, at the ways that the settlement of of the, those British colonies was genocidal, and that we had these ideas of who we were and who others were, and this you know the the inherent inferiority of the native peoples that we are displacing and murdering. Half of the wealth of colonial New England is coming from You know, sugar plantations enslaved people in sugar plantations in the West Indies. So, in so many ways, we're we're complicit in these systems, and we're building societies based on this hierarchy um, that we're justifying in different ways, whether through Christianity or through, you know, this this presumed inferiority of the the men and women that we were enslaving and profiting from. So, working on this book just blew up so many of the the lies that I was telling myself about about our past and, and how that past was, was shaping our present.
0: Yeah, the North is not off the hook. No. You began this journey in 2015 when, as you told us, President Obama gave the speech at the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. It's such a stunning memory to picture... The Obamas linked in arms with John Lewis marching across that bridge. Five years later now, does the book have new meaning for you? Or added layers for you in the events of this year? Other than the birth of your darling daughter. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, I think, you know, of course, after a summer of, of, of monuments coming down, <laughs> I I wish that I could still still be writing, they had to really pry the book out of my hands uh, to send it to the printers uh, for, the, you know, during the last sweep of copy editing, I was still trying to, <laughs> to write new chapters. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it, it added to the poignancy and, and, and the power of the images that we've seen in different cities of these, these monuments coming down, uh, especially the ones that in, in which they were taken down just as a, a, a sort of organic expression of the will of the people. In a lot of cities, people are done asking to take these monuments down and are just going out, um, you know, with chains tied to the back of pickup trucks. With flamethrowers, with tire irons, uh, with paint, with sledgehammers, and just doing it themselves, and I think that, that that's really powerful as an expression of of a collective will that has just lost any sort of patience with this process. You know, a lot of the stories that I followed for the book uh, involved uh, activists trying to proceed as the way allows, and you know, wanting to work through the channels, whether that's city council, state. Governments, you know, university administrators, uh, to 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 sort of appeal to the morality of these institutions and get them to see uh, the, the the horrific and violent history that these that these statues represent, and to ask them, you know, in 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 good conscience to to take them down. But in so many cases were refused. And so I think what one of the things we see this summer is just a, a feeling like we're done asking and, and they're, they're coming down. And understanding that those removals in the context of just a sort of a revolutionary gesture rather than just a sort of bureaucratic gesture, I think has been really powerful to see. You mentioned the speech that President Obama gave on the, at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the, the day that you know really kicked kicked off the the story that this book tells, and I think that this year has been a really good reminder that progress is not inevitable. I think some people like to a lot of a lot of white people too. I think if I can generalize, <laughs> like to think about the civil rights history as race used to be a problem brave men like Martin Luther King stood up and marched and, you know, solved it. And, and it doesn't really have much to do with us. And, and of course the bridge in Selma, the, the, the metaphorical meaning of that bridge crossing over progress, progress fulfilled, I think is really tempting. But what I think this year reminds us is that that's not an all at all inevitable and that it, you know, we we constantly have to fight for it, and any gains that we make, any progress we get, any any <laughs> policies that can uh, address the the sorts of inequities that we have in this country are, are we need to fight for tooth and nail, and, and and won't come you know because it's predestined to come, but it it comes because people were willing to fight for it. That was certainly true in the case of, you know, the the movement in Selma. I don't think anyone thought it was inevitable that, that they would secure voting rights during those demonstrations. Um, but they were willing to, you know, as John Lewis was willing to get his, his skull fractured to fight for that. And I think that that we can take lessons from that moment. But one of them shouldn't be that that progress is inevitable, that that it's a it's a constant fight. So, you know, regardless of the outcome of the um of the election in a couple of weeks. We've got our work cut out for us in terms of uh, the, the, the fights that lay
0: ahead. Or as you eloquently express at the end of the book, simply knowing our history cannot redeem us, cannot, as they say in Selma, get us to the beyond.
1: Mm, that's right, yeah. That line comes from a, a, a slogan in Selma, from, from civil war to civil rights and beyond. And as, as one of the activists who was protesting the, the forest statue in Selma uh, pointed out to me, you know, we haven't gotten to the beyond yet. And those are the sorts of fights that we've still got to dig in for.
0: Author Connor Town O'Neill, his new book is called Down Along with That Devil's Bones A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy. The author will discuss his book in a virtual event with the Atlanta History Center this evening at 7. The virtual event is free and the public is welcome. The book is available for purchase online at Acapella Books. There's more City Lights ahead on 90.1. W A B E Atlanta. I was
1: working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld
3: an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the, match. He did the, monster, match. the monster match. It was a graveyard
0: smash, he did the match. it caught on in a flag. Like everything else in 2020, Halloween will be very different. But celebrating with the Center for Puppetry Arts remains a wonderful tradition. Beth Shavo is the executive director of the Center. She's with us now via Zoom, along with the World of Puppetry Museum director and curator Jill Malool. Welcome back to City Lights.
3: Thank you so much for having us, Lois.
0: Let's start with the kids stuff. What can you tell us about the Monster Mash?
2: The Monster Mash event on October 31st on Halloween was imagined out of a group of our leaders trying to figure out how we can create a safe alternative to trick-or-treating for those parents who are not quite comfortable with the idea of their children going door-to-door in today's environment. So we've created this wonderful afternoon and morning and afternoon of activities for kids to come to the center and have all sorts of different activities, but to be able to do that in a safe environment. And we've worked really hard on crowd flow and limiting the number of tickets to make sure that everyone that's there feels really, really comfortable. Jill, maybe you can talk about what the, the families are going to experience when they come.
3: Well, the center is a wonderful place to celebrate Halloween because we have all of those friendly monsters from the Muppets that you know and love. That's kind of where the idea came out of, and we're going to have all kinds of fun things for you to see. Of course, we have four exhibits for everyone to enjoy, including our Global Gallery and our Jim Henson Gallery. And our Dark Crystal exhibition is still open this weekend. And then we also have a little special exhibition on puppets from the Ghastly Dreadfuls, which is our normal Halloween show. And of course that is adult oriented, but the puppets are beautiful and able for everyone to be able to enjoy. So we have those out for people to see since we can't unfortunately um, do that safely right now. So we have that. Um, You're gonna be able to create a pumpkin puppet. We haven't been able to do our creative puppet workshops for a while and we're very glad to be bringing that back for this special event we're going to have a story time with the good witch aretta and that will be in our theater so you'll be able to come in and enjoy that and um, we have that uh spaced out so the capacity will be safe and people can have this wonderful halloween story time experience big bird's nest which is a replica that we have created with advice from the folks at sesame street so it's it looks just like big bird's nest is um, out and decorated for halloween so you can come and get your spooky halloween photo perfect for instagram and facebook and sockley our nine foot tall body sock puppet will be out and available for photo ops as well so um, that's going to be exciting and of course this is all uh, included with your admission to the worlds of puppetry museum and because it's halloween we'll have goodie bags for everyone so there'll be lots of wonderful things to enjoy and of course please come in your costumes and enjoy the day
0: Beth, how has it been working out for the Center for Puppetry Arts with the new health and safety measures you implemented for visitors?
2: We've really had a a great response from our patrons with respect to our safety measures. Um, We feel as if We're doing what we can to not only ensure the safety of those who visit the center, but also our employees as well. We use a virtual concierge. So when people come into the center, they can actually have an experience where they do not interact physically with any center employee, which of course keeps them safe and it keeps us safe. Um, And then we do limit the number of people that we allow into the center and into the museum at any given time so that provides not only safety but also just a really great experience for people to take their time in the exhibits that we have going on right now so it's it's been it's been fantastic we've been very fortunate that you know everyone that's come in has been totally fine with wearing masks and keeping distant and and very thankful to us for the measures we've taken
0: how is it going to work with kids on saturday
2: yeah that's a great question so similarly we will keep our capacity low one thing we have found is and i'm sure others have as well is that just the resiliency of children during this time they're very used to wearing masks and very used to being cautious every now and then you get a toddler every now and then that may run astray but for the most part it's been you know i've been very impressed with how well the kids have adapted to this type of lifestyle. So we will continue to have the crowd flow. I mean, we're very, we're very particular on what activities people will do at certain times. So that way, you know, we don't bunch up with the children. But, you know, we're hoping that parents will be watching their, their youngest youngest. But um, for the most part, we're not anticipating any issues.
0: Great. Now, the ghastly dreadfuls Was created 15 years ago by John Ludwig and Jason Hines. Would you talk about how it was started, Jill, and what this adults only performance involves?
3: So the Ghastly Dreadfuls has, over these years, become an important part of the holiday, Halloween, here in Atlanta. So we started out offering the show, and it's this wonderful sort of vaudevillian collection of puppet vignettes that are Halloween-related and with all kinds of wonderful songs, some that you recognize, and just really great energy.
1: I got a message from below From a man I used to know about a year or so ago before he departed, he is just as happy as can be. I'll tell you what he said to me. He said, If ever you
3: and people really caught on to that and our audiences really responded. We, over the 15 years, um, there was a very short break in the middle of there where we thought we could let it go and then people said no, no thank you, you need to bring that back please. So we did and people come in costume, people come as ghastlies. It's really fantastic to see the energy that people bring to this and it is 18 and up and to us it's really important to offer good solid, beautiful theatrical puppetry for adults, as well as for children. This is an art form that we are very committed to sharing with everybody. Sometimes we tend to think about puppets just for children, but that isn't true. If you look around at movies and all kinds of things, that you, theater things in the United States, you'll see that we do have puppets for adults. Sometimes it's just something you need to be made aware of. So, we have this wonderful show. Like I said, we have the puppets out for people to be able to see and we're offering this wonderful virtual opportunity to rent the 2016 version of uh, Gas the Gastly Dreadfuls and you can do that on Vimeo. And then, of course, we're having a virtual version of the Ghastly Dreadfuls that I think is just going to be so much fun, also for 18 and up, and at 7.30 on Saturday. So after you've had your Halloween fun with your children at the Monster Mash, you can go home and enjoy Ghastly Dreadfuls Exhumed from the Tomb. And that's a live virtual event on Zoom, and there's going to be rare clips from the show Vault. Um. true behind the scenes tales of terror from the cast of The Dreadfuls. We'll be having cocktails with Lady Dreadful and we <laughs> share that recipe so people can make their cocktail and have it ready to go. And then we have this costume parade that we've been um, getting people on Facebook and Instagram to share their favorite costumes. So we'll be showing that stuff as well and so the show has really become an important part of Atlanta And we wanna make sure that we can get all of our fans together. And we've been able to create fans all across the country. I know for a fact that some friends from Rhode Island are tuning in. So we're gonna be able to um,
0: share the guests even wider. We're really excited about that. Why was 2016 chosen? The
2: 2016 archival performance is, is a really, we have a really good recording of that performance. And it also included some of the most popular vignettes that that we do. As Jill mentioned before, you know, each year is slightly different with our Ghastly Dreadfuls, which is why it brings back such a cult following each year. You have people who want to see their favorites, but then they also get um, introduced to some new shows. But the 2016 performance includes some of our most popular shows, um, and it's just a really good recording that we've been able to make available to our
0: Ghastly fans. You mentioned the Center's special exhibit of a gathering of ghastlies, puppets from the Ghastly Dreadfuls. What can viewers see on display?
3: We have puppets from a variety of the vignettes. We have Aloysius. Uh, people who know the ghastlies will know the names of the puppets. We have two children that are from a sketch where the mother, is. Uh, when she grew up, she caused the passing of another person, and the ghost of the kid meets her child, and she convinces him to go swimming with her. And these tales are a little bit the cub, but of course it's Halloween, so that's part of the fun. We have some puppets from a sketch about a gentleman who is waiting for his train to death to come along. They're, these are just really incredibly beautiful puppets. Jason Hines and John Ludwig created the show together, and they have made just some really amazing things. And people don't really get to see our puppets up close. Part of the theatricality is, is how they are shown on the stage and do really honor that. We tend to not put those things on exhibit, but this was a rare opportunity where we could do that. So we're really up close and personal with the different items, um, even some of the stage sets and and things. And it's just a small little gathering of the puppets, but it's really quite special for me to be able to um,
0: share those things with our audience. What fun concoctions will Lady Dreadful be teaching audiences to make?
3: Le Petit Vampire, I'm probably not saying that correctly, is based on one of the vignettes that she is part of. And because it had a bit of a French take, we took Chambord or some sort of raspberry liqueur and mixed it with champagne and um, have put together a a lovely little bloody cocktail. You can rim it with red sugar so it looks delicious and Halloween-y. And um, you can enjoy that, or you can also enjoy your favorite libation while she is demonstrating how to make the cocktail.
0: Gastly fans also can participate in creating their own Catly Dreadful. First, what does this character look like? And, and what's the backstory of this puppet?
3: Each of the Ghastlies, when you see the Ghastly Dreadful's, has a character. There, there's Lady Dreadful, there's Catly Dreadful, there's Simply Dreadful. They each have their own sort of backstory, and Catly Dreadful is a cat and he reacts to things as a cat might, and meows, and uh, is just wonderful. I'm not entirely certain how the character came to be, but I know that Jason, who portrays him, is a cat person, and cats are just very funny. Uh, as we were planning this event to be shared on the internet, we thought, well, cats are an important part of the internet. People go and see cats on the internet, so cat really needs to be a part of that. And a couple of years ago, when we were doing Ghastly Dreadfuls, our membership manager wanted to do something special for the people who support the center annually through membership. And so she worked with our education team to create a special create-a-puppet kit that was a cat puppet that featured Jason's face. It was a big hit with our members. It was a big hit with our audience. And it's really just quite funny.
0: Oh, I love the idea of a Jason Hines puppet, cat puppet himself. Am I correct? Was it Jason who created the puppet for Pete the Cat when you did that show.
3: Yes, he's done so much wonderful work and we're so lucky to have him on our team and it's really inspiring to see how he, he's worked on a Rudolph puppets. he worked on the Pete the Cat puppets. He can create his own amazing work but also he can really faithfully recreate and bring to life stories from other people as well and he's he's really quite
0: something to watch. Yeah, I interviewed him and the authors of Pete the Cat at the time and I recall Jason telling me that he worked on the Pete the Cat puppet for about a year
2: absolutely and if you ever have the opportunity to visit our puppet workshop back when we when we start doing tours again It's my favorite part of the tour of the center um, because it does have this wonderful magic to it. Um, It's almost like a Santa's workshop. And Jason and and, and Carol DiAgostino are just always at work like elves just creating this magic. Um, Whether it's, as Jill mentioned, adapting stories or creating their own puppets. It's where everything really starts, you know, in terms of creation for our puppet shows and... It's a wonderful part of our tour when we're able to do that again.
0: On Halloween, the Ghastlies will present the Ghastly Dreadfuls Exhumed, that would be Z-O-O-M apostrophe D, from the tomb, love the puns, without giving away spoilers. Can you tell us what this performance will be about?
2: So what's great about a live virtual event um, and what we have found is that it creates this incredible intimacy, even when you do have You know, a, a large audience that's with you. What's going to be really fun or the Gasleys, are going to be taking people behind the scenes and behind the production of the Gasleys and sharing their stories. So in doing that, they'll be sharing rare clips from the shows. So all the different types of shows that we presented, they'll be able to show rare clips from those. And then real behind the scenes, tales of terror that they'll be able to um, share with the audience in a really unique and new way. And as as Jill mentioned, they'll be you know raising their glass with cocktails and they'll be sharing a number of the photos that people have already started to post on Facebook and Instagram, people dressed up in costumes, and they'll be sharing those as well. And the idea really is just a celebration. Um, you know, we can't be there in person this year, but our ghastly actors really wanted to engage with their with their fans this year, and the fans really wanted them to engage as well. And this will allow them to do that in a real kind of fun and intimate way.
0: Beth Jill Chumalul. Happy Halloween, and thank you so very much. Thank Thank you, you Lois.
2: Happy Halloween.
0: Executive Director for the Center for Puppetry Arts, Beth Chavo, and Museum Director Jill Malool. For more information on their Halloween events, the Monster Mash, and... The Ghastly Dreadfuls exhumed from the tomb. Check out our website at wabe.orgslash citylights Lights. City Lights is our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. His annual Halloween music segment is always a treat. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Listen back to interviews and shows from the archives on our website, wabe.org citylights. And download and listen to our podcast wherever you subscribe. Thanks for listening to member support at 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.